Good morning. <laughs> it's great to be here with you this morning. Glad to have every single one of you present here this morning, and we're so thankful for this opportunity to worship together. Um, for those of you maybe that I haven't met before, my name is Matt Trent, and uh, I work with the church in Norman, Oklahoma. Of course, I'm from California and really still a Californian. I just happen to live in, in Oklahoma now. And so Rachel's here with me, my wife Rachel. I'm glad she's with me. The kids are in Clovis this morning with my dad. And so anyway, but we're glad to be here with you and very, very thankful for the invitation to be your speaker this morning. I want to read with you just one passage of scripture this morning as we begin our study from the book of 1 John. And it's just a short passage, and we're going to come back to it again uh, later in our lesson. But I want to just use this one passage to introduce our study for this morning. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, the Bible says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know, in our family, I am a big fan of routine. And uh, for a few years there, it was just me and three kids. And I liked routine before, but at that time I liked it even more. Because it's a little bit challenging to keep track of three kids and what they're all supposed to do and all of that. And that is especially true with their homework. And so when they would come home with their different assignments or whatever, I like to kind of have a schedule where I would work with them on particular things. And so a few years ago, um, Micah would come home every afternoon and he had his vocab for the week. And he'd get this list of 10 words or 12 words, whatever it was. And those were his words to learn. And every single day of the week, he had a different assignment with that vocabulary list. And so, you know, on Monday, he just had to write them out. I don't know, five times or something. And then Tuesday, he had to write a definition for them. And then by Friday, he's supposed to be able to take a spelling test and spell them correctly and I think be able to define them. And so they would send us those vocab words and they would help us or help him uh, to explore some particular topic he'd been studying. And so if they're studying about space, you know, all the words may have something to do with, with outer space and stars and all of that sort of a thing. Um, or if they're studying about some unit in history, maybe it would be a words that are associated with uh, the Revolutionary War, something like that. So it was kind of interesting because as he learned these words, he could think more deeply about various things he was learning about, different topics and everything. So I got to thinking about this idea of a vocabulary list. And I noticed in my own reading through the Bible, I got to noticing, you know, when God talks about how he saves man, he doesn't just use the same word over and over again. In fact, he uses lots of different words to talk about how he saves man. And what if I was to make a vocabulary list of the vocabulary of salvation? You know, on that list, you would have words like grace and mercy and justification, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, cleansing, election, remission. Just think of that list. That's a heavy list. God used those words and a whole bunch of other ones to describe how he saves man from sin. 
Well, why did he do that? Why did he just say over and over again, I saved you, I saved you, I saved you? You know, each of these different terms is used by God intentionally to teach us something maybe about himself, something about man, something about Jesus. In fact, these terms help us to learn about those sorts of things in a deeper level. And so I got to noticing around that time, there's one of these words that God uses, propitiation. I didn't really know very much about. I read it. I'd see it there in the Bible from time to time. But what does that word mean? When you read 1 John 2 and 2 and it says, And he himself is the propitiation. What does that mean? What does the word propitiation mean? And so for me, the starting point, of course, I'd have to make sure I'm spelling it correctly. Hopefully I spelled it correctly up here this morning. But then beyond that, we want to look at a meaning of this term. And we want to understand from this particular term, what does this term teach us about man? And what does this term teach us about God? So I want to give you this morning as we begin just a real simple definition of the word propitiation. The word propitiation means a sacrifice to take away wrath. That's what the word means. As you study the history of the word, uh, back in the early days of the use of the Greek language, when they began the, sort of using this term, they had these, this system of polytheism. They had hundreds of different gods. And they'd have some event happen. Maybe they'd have a fire or they'd have a drought, or they'd have flooding or something like that, and they would decide that they had somehow made some god angry, one of their false gods. And as you learn about their false gods, their false gods are actually just a whole lot like people with unchecked power. And so they'd figure, well, they had done something to make this god angry, and we got to figure out how to make him happy with us again. And so they kind of would invent these different sacrifices or services or whatever. And they would offer these sacrifices to take away the wrath of this false god. So there's kind of the background of this term. But when this term is used in the New Testament, it's not used in reference to a false god. It's not used to some maniac with unchecked power like the false gods of the Greeks. Instead, it's used in reference to our God. And it's used to teach us about our God. I want to begin by noticing with you, as we've talked about this word, what this teaches us about man. What this particular term teaches us about man and our relationship with God. The fact of the matter is, is that we as individuals... When we become guilty of sin, are the recipients of the wrath of God. Sin, we have to understand its very nature. Sin is an affront to God. Sin is an act of war against God. And God hates sin. God doesn't hate you. He doesn't hate me. But he hates sin. And when sin becomes part of our life, we make ourselves an opponent of God, a recipient of his wrath. Listen to what Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says. 
And uh, let me just actually read with you through verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verses 18 to 21. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, for mankind, we have this, this problem. And this problem is that we have all committed sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the, the wrath of God is revealed because he told us. We know. But we ignored it. And we became guilty of sin. They did it, and we've done the same exact thing. And all by yourself, all on your own, once you've become guilty, what can you do about that? Once you've committed a sin, what can you do about it? Maybe as you think back over this week, maybe you think back over your life, you can think of a, of a sin you've committed in particular. What can you do about it? What can you do about what you did yesterday? You know what you can do all on your own? We're unable to do anything. All on our own, we can't do a thing about the sin that has been committed. Think of the position we put ourselves in. We don't really realize the moment this happens in our lives what we've actually done. Typically, this happens when we're younger. Maybe you're just getting close to being a teenager, or maybe you are a teenager. And all of a sudden, here comes the age of accountability. There's not an absolute point where that shows up in every person's life. But it does show up where you know right and wrong. You know what you, you ought to do, what you ought not to do. And then you violate it anyway. You know what's wrong to lie, and you tell a lie anyway. You know it's wrong to be hateful and disrespectful to your parents, but you are disrespectful and hateful to your parents anyway. Well, those are sins. And they're so easily committed, aren't they? Just right there in the flash of a moment, you've committed your first sin. And what can you do about it? Not a thing. There it is. It's on your record. And if it's just left to me, just left to you, it's never going away. No way we could pay for it. The wrath of God remains upon us. John 3 and 36 says it this way, that if you do not believe in Jesus, that the wrath of God remains upon you. It's a horrible thought, isn't it, to think of the almighty creator, all-powerful, and he's angry at me. I've put myself in opposition to him. And what do I do about it? You know, I learned something really neat in this study that I want to share with you from the book of Luke. 
Because in Luke chapter 18, this is the dilemma another person faced a long time before you and me came along. Luke chapter 18 is a familiar parable about the rich man, or the publican, I mean, and the tax collector. These guys both might have been wealthy, actually, come to think of it. But anyway, in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, this is a story about two different kinds of prayer and two different ways of approaching God, really. And I want to just show you this relates to this concept of propitiation. Luke chapter 18, I want to begin reading with you here at verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, this Pharisee provides a, a tremendous example of what not to do, how not to pray, how not to look at yourself, how not to speak to God. There's nothing that he does that is, that is a good example, really. Here he is in the temple. Just notice as you read his prayer how many times he uses the word I. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. In his mind, salvation is all about a checklist. I've gone down the checklist, so God, you owe me. He kind of missed this point, didn't he? Of the fact that sin came into his life and he really, on his own, couldn't do anything. Since he's guilty of sin, what could he do about it? But there he is bragging. There he is looking down his nose at everybody else. There he is completely blind to the fact that he's going to leave the temple at a guilty distance from God. But then here comes this tax collector. And uh, the heroes of Jesus' story are always, you know, tax collectors or Samaritans or people like that that everyone else hated. Jesus shows how, because of faith, these folks live great lives sometimes. So here's this tax collector who comes into the temple, and you can just sense the humility in the guy in his posture. It says he won't even hardly, he won't lift his eyes. And what does he pray? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what I learned about this little statement here is that when he says, be merciful to me, that's not the term usually translated mercy in the New Testament. It's actually the term usually translated propitiation. Do you know what the tax collector says? He says, God, I cannot do anything about my sin. There it is in my life. I can't do anything. Can you? I can't take care of my sin. Will you help me? Can you help me with my sin? 
And he's humble because he knows he committed the sin. It's his guilt, his responsibility, but he can't do anything about it. So he says, God, can you help me? I'm glad to tell you this morning that God's answer to that question is yes. Because we're all right there with the tax collector. We're guilty of sin and on our own we can't take anything away from our sin. So what do we need? We call out to God. And what does he provide? He provided his son. And when we were asked, God, can you do something about it? He said, yes. And he sent his son to die upon the cross. And this morning we can preach this gospel that those who hear the word, those who believe it, those who repent of their sins, those who confess their sins, and those who are immersed, this is God's plan of salvation. And I can preach this gospel this morning because God answered, yes, I'll do something about your sin. I'm going to send my son and he's going to die in your place. And if you believe in him, I'll take away your sin. If you'll obey the gospel, I'll take away your sin. If you'll follow my plan, I'll take away your sin. Aren't you glad this morning that God said yes? And as we think about our own lives and think about our own relationship with God, we need him. We need his plan. We need to be close to him. Because when we're away from him and recipients of his wrath, we do not want to bear that. We need to be close to him. And so we cry out to him, just like this tax collector did. God, please help me. Please help me. And here's his answer. This morning, this is his answer for all of us. That we would obey the gospel. And in that way, we would be saved from our sins. And what I want to do for the rest of our time together is to read four passages in the New Testament that use the word propitiation. Because what I really believe about this word is that this word teaches us some really important lessons about God. The fact that God would send His Son to pay a sin that was my responsibility, that teaches us some important lessons about God. So grab your Bibles and turn with me first of all to Romans chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, we want to read together a couple of verses here. Um, the word propitiation itself is going to be um, in verse 25. But we want to notice together, beginning at verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 26. I'd like to just kind of make sure we read this line of thought here. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to notice with you the first thing we learn about God 
when we study about the concept of propitiation, is we learn that God is righteous. You notice at least twice in this passage, and maybe you could argue more than that, it mentions the idea that this demonstrates God's righteousness. And what does the word righteousness mean? Righteousness is all about conforming to what's right, doing what's right. So what is this passage in Romans 3 all about? The whole point of this section is to prove everybody's guilty of sin. Verse 23. Everybody's guilty of sin. That being true, how does God have a relationship with man? You know, why didn't God, why didn't he just give us a pass? Why didn't God just say, okay, I know you committed sin, but I'm just not going to worry about it because I love you. God doesn't view sin that way. You know, the way man views sin and the way God views sin is different. And sin is not something God can ignore. It's impossible. And so how is it that God could have a relationship with all these people? He sent Jesus as a propitiation. I want you to notice there in verse 25. Um, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. The cross paid for all these sins that were committed way back in the Old Testament. When did David's sin ever get paid for? It was paid for on the cross. What about Moses? Moses committed sin. When did his sin get paid for? On the cross. All of those millions of people that lived before Jesus, when did their billions or trillions of sins, when did the debt get paid for all of those? On the cross. God paid for all of those debts. And all of that they were doing, they were doing things looking forward to the Messiah. Their sacrifices were looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come. God demonstrates his righteousness because he took care of all of that sin. And every faithful person from the Old Testament is saved because Jesus paid the debt for their sin. And then look at verse 26. To demonstrate that at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just in the justifier. So he's just in that he took care of this. He's the justifier in that the death of Jesus takes care of all of the sins of the New Testament age. Do you see how it points both ways? He's just because he took care of all those sins in the Old Testament. The justifier taking care of all the sins in the New Testament. You see how thorough his plan is. All of the sin for all time is paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus. And he saves the faithful for all of the ages based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God is righteous. And sin had to be dealt with. And so he dealt with every sin that's ever committed or ever will be committed by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The second passage I'd like to look at with you for a few moments is in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And I'd like to read here verses 14 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. Fair warning, if you're reading the old King James, um, 
The word we're looking for is in verse 17. The New King James is going to say propitiation. The Old King James, it will say reconciliation. But it's the same Greek word that's translated propitiation everywhere else. And so anyway, just to give you a little bit of a heads up there. Let's start in Hebrews 2 verse 14. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. I want to just emphasize one point from this passage as well, and that is, is that God understands. You know, this passage talks about Jesus Christ becoming human, becoming flesh. And he became flesh, lived in the flesh, to destroy the power of the devil, to destroy the power he has through death. And he accomplished that. When he died, he then rose from the grave, and he now has opened the way for all of us to raise, to live eternally. Now, verse 17 mentions that in all things he became like his brethren. In all things he became like us. He became human, just like us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. That's our representative to the Father, is Jesus. And look what it says. In things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins, for in that he has suffered, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You know, God is, is righteous. Every sin matters to him. And sometimes when you think about someone who's really, really good at something, it's hard for them to relate to someone who isn't. And so I think of math teachers when I think of that, and I don't mean any insult by that, but I really liked math. I wasn't a super excellent math student. So I had to work really hard to learn these different mathematical concepts. And I had teachers sometimes who, they didn't have to work hard to learn it. It just made sense to them. Maybe some of you are like that. That's not how I was. And so when I had challenges and I'd talk to these math teachers, they didn't understand you just do it. What do you mean it's hard? You just do it. There's the answer. That's not how it works for me. Then I finally got this teacher. I had this math teacher who was like me. And he started telling me, here's what you need to do to build your math up. Here's the steps you need to take. And it was a lot of extra work. But I did it. And I finally got an A in a math class with that guy. That was a great class. But you know the difference was he understood my struggle. He understood why it was hard. So he could relate to me. And so when we think about the idea that God is righteous, that can sort of give people sometimes maybe the idea that God is somewhat distant and doesn't understand maybe the challenges that we face. So that's why you read Hebrews chapter 2. Because he does understand. There's Jesus sitting at God's right hand. 
And Jesus lived on this earth, and he faced every single temptation that we face. The temptations of, of 1 John 2, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The devil hit him with those through his life just like he hits him with us through ours. And he hit him hard. He didn't give up. He just kept coming at him. Jesus knows it's hard. He understands. He understands the sway that the devil has over this world. He understands the challenges that we face in various settings of life. I don't mean to say this morning that Jesus justifies sinful decisions. Because he doesn't. But he understands that it's hard. And when you have a tough day, and you can tell the devil is really hurt, coming at you, and you pray to God about it, there's Jesus at God's right hand, and he gets it. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what that feels like. And it's great to know this morning, as you pray to this perfect God who cannot tolerate sin, that he has his son sitting at his right hand, and he understands. He understands. I want to look at again now at 1 John chapter 2. Because we've learned that God is righteous. We've learned that God understands the struggle that we face with sin. I want to emphasize to you now another important point as we go back to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. Here the Bible says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know, this particular passage teaches us where I am unable, God is able. He can do it. I want you to just stop and look at this verse for a second. Just let it kind of soak in. Where it says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. You know, this morning I couldn't do a thing on my own without God's help about a single sin. Not one. I don't have the power to change one sinful act to make it go away after it's been committed. But look at what that says. God has the power to take away the sins of the whole entire world. Now, here we are in Bakersfield, California this morning. I don't know the population of Bakersfield anymore. I used to. A couple of hundred thousand people, maybe some, maybe more than that. How many sins do you think have been committed in Bakersfield, California this morning? I don't know. Thousands, maybe a million, I don't know. How many have been committed in the state of California this morning? Just this morning. You have, what is it now, around 40 million people. What about in the United States? Or by the 7 billion inhabitants of the whole entire world this morning. How many sins have been committed on June 9th, 2019? Doesn't that kind of blow you? Just to think of that. And God can take care of all of them. I couldn't take change one, and he can take care of all of them. And not just for what's happened this morning, but for what's happened all through time. And for every single life, 
Doesn't that teach you this morning about the power of God? That God is able. He is righteous. He understands the, tr- the challenge that we face. And he has the ability then to do something about it. I want to look at one last passage with you. This one from 1 John chapter 4. And I want to notice here with you verse 10. Because I want to look at one last point here. And that is the question of motive. Why would he do it? In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why would God do that? Why would he use all of his power to take away my sin because of love? Because of love. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of uh, suspicious at times uh, when people want to do something nice for me. And I don't mean like, my, like Rachel. I'm not suspicious when she brings me coffee. I think that's fantastic. But I mean maybe somebody that's a little bit more distant. So a few years ago, Micah and I, for example, went to a, a baseball game in Chicago. And we went to a, a game on the south side of Chicago. We saw the White Sox play. And we're standing there in line getting ready to buy some tickets. And we're chatting about whatever, you know, and uh, trying to figure out what seats we're going to buy and all of that. And uh, there, were, there was not a long line to buy tickets there. And there were plenty of seats available. Not like going to a Dodger game. <laughs> anyway, there are lots of seats available. So we're standing there looking at the available seats. And all of a sudden this gentleman walks up to me. He says, are you buying tickets? (laughs) I thought, well, I hope so. That's what this line is for, isn't it? He said, I've got something for you. Really? Okay, so I stepped out of line. And he says, you know, I've been standing here for 10 minutes just watching for the right father-son combination to walk by. He said, I've got a couple of tickets. I want to give you these tickets. I thought, who are you? And, you know, you sort of get to looking around, and I don't know if candid camera's still on TV or not, but you kind of have these memories of these practical jokes being played on people or whatever. And so I think, okay, we got a lot of time before the game. Even if this is a joke or whatever, i got time to come back and buy tickets and still make it in for the game. So he gives me this envelope, and we walk in, and I flash these tickets to the guy, and they let me in. And along with these tickets, there's these passes, and I didn't know what these passes all meant. So we walk in and find the signs, and I begin following these signs to go where these passes would admit us. And we found our way to this kind of remote little part of the stadium where there was this nice restaurant. And there was a guy there, like, preventing people from coming in. And when I showed him what I had, he said, well, you can come in. Your meal's taken care of. And I didn't eat there because when you go to a baseball game, you eat a Dodger dog. You know, that's the way I've grown up. So you don't eat a nice dinner at a baseball game like that. But anyway, it was impressive. And I thought, wow, this may be something. And so we go find our way to our seats. And we just kept going down and down and down. And before you know it, there we're sitting about 10 rows behind home plate. 
And there's all these guys sitting around us with these stopwatches and stuff. They were scouts. We were sitting where all the scouts sit. You know, the more I went into that, the more I liked that guy. And we sat, ended up sitting there next to him and his wife. It just happened his son couldn't come to the game, so he wanted to share it with somebody else. And we sat there next to him and his wife and chatted with them through the game. Nice, nice people. But see, that's sort of how this works with this subject this morning. You begin learning about these concepts, right? I'm guilty of sin. And the one I'm guilty against, what's he going to do? He's mad at me. What's he going to do? This righteous God. Well, it just so happens that he understands his struggle. He has the power to do something about it. And he loves you. He loves you. And so he's going to do everything he can to help you. This morning, I don't know everything about your life. I don't know the struggles that you face. But I know sin is awful. And I know sin is a cruel, cruel companion. And when it comes into your life, it just beats on you. And maybe this morning, that's where you are. Maybe sin's been beating on you for a while and you're tired of it. Well, I want to tell you, you have a God that loves you. On your own, you're never going to fix those problems. But cry out to him. Call out to him. And he'll answer you. Here's the way we call out to him. You see, we hear the good news that we've talked about this morning, about God's plan of salvation. We believe that good news. We commit to a change of life from living our way to living God's way. We confess our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and then we're immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. This is God's plan of salvation this morning. This is how this morning that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can take away the wrath that is in your life because of sin. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.